Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Uh, we want to switch gears a little bit and talk about AT&T, talk about DirecTV, the pay TV business. There's lots going on there. Something that came out a little bit strange, I think, in this world of cord cutting is AT&T's DirecTV business is actually raising rates. So to help us kind of walk through the strategy there, we welcome John Butler. John, learned, John is a senior telecom services and equipment analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. John, thanks for joining us. Uh, in a world of cord cutting, a price increase seemed a little strange. What, what do you read into it? It does, but I don't think they're making money in the business. I think that's part of what's behind this move. If you hear them defend it, they say, we want to get towards that break-even EBITDA in this business. And I think also advertising plays into it. So they ran promotions to get subscribers into DirecTV now in the beginning, it's a, a video, pay TV video streaming service. They're up against a lot of competition. They offered low rates to scale up quiz, quickly. But ultimately, you want to shake out those people that really aren't using the product or are just there because of low price. So does this suggest that they're really having problems competing with Netflix and the other streamers that are out there? Because that would be a, a real concern for AT&T and shareholders because that's, that's, that's one of the pillars of the growth story. Yeah, I think it's a concern. Look, a lot of people are asking what's on Netflix tonight, what's on Amazon tonight, as opposed to turning to traditional pay TV packages, whether it's direct TV now or it's delivered via Comcast. So there is some churn there and they're trying to stabilize that. And I think by sort of culling the service down to the most loyal user base, they can then rebuild from there, if you will. So just real quickly here, I'm wondering from an antitrust perspective, whether this will lead to fears that this consolidation that we've seen among the big cable companies will lead to higher prices for consumers. You know, I think it's a risk, but it's so competitive out there, Lisa, that if anything, that's the competition is the best way to police price. And, and really, there's no lack of competition in the streaming space or in traditional pay TV. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. We really Thank appreciate you. it. Really interesting uh, that AT&T is hiking its prices amid all of that fierce competition. John Butler is Bloomberg North American Telecom's uh, Bloomberg uh, analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, Amazon.com, Paul, has been transforming the retail landscape in many ways. It's also been absolutely transforming uh, the world of shipping and delivery. Joining us now uh, to talk about that as well as just more broadly uh, the business uh, backdrop for shipping is John Pearson. He is the new chief executive officer of DHL Express. Joining us from our San Francisco studio, John, you are there to celebrate the 50th year of DHL Express. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We're celebrating many things, celebrating some of our employee awards, um, the graduation of our supervisors, our DHL's Got Heart program, and definitely our 50th anniversary of DHL Express. And in fact, 
massively pleasingly to us all. We were presented with uh, the certificate of honour by uh, a representative, Alex Lazar, from the mayor's office. So that was uh, quite something. Congratulations. Given this is our hometown. So, so 50 years, uh, a lot has happened. And in the past few years in particular, uh, the rate of, of change has been dramatic. I'm just wondering, uh, what is your biggest challenge right now as you try to adapt to the Amazon era? Well, I think the rate of change has been phenomenal um, since 1969. Setting up a cross-border Time definite international express business wasn't easy in in those early years when we we're pioneering all the countries. But uh, to Amazon, yes, I mean Amazon have been a fantastic partner and customer for oh, I'm guessing a little bit, but somewhere between ten and thirteen years. So um, I think that's the most important thing. We do work with them, we do work for them, and the way I see it a little bit is that the size of the e-commerce opportunity is such, whether it be B2C or B2B or even B2B marketplaces, the sizes are such that we're perhaps sharing the pizza or the cake, if you can take that analogy, rather than competing for it. Um, I think there's a lot out there. I think that uh, all organizations, and definitely this is our own focus, need to be focused on playing in e-commerce profitably. As I say, when there's so much of something about, you can grab bits of something that may not be right for your organization. So we play in the the, the sort of top end of the of the time definite uh, cross border e commerce market, whether that's luxury fashion and um, uh, apparel, which a lot of it is, by the way, but also consumer electronics and all sorts of other things that people are producing and putting on the world stage. So that's how I would summarize. There's a little bit of an e-commerce comment. There's a little bit of an Amazon comment. But uh, as I say, our relationship with Amazon has been uh, very strong for well over a decade. And So, John, with, with the growth of e-commerce, which, you know, no signs of slowing down, the, one of the concerns is about the global logistics backbone, the global shipping backbone. Is it enough? Is it, uh, I guess, vibrant enough to support the growth of e-commerce? What is your thought that's there globally? Yeah. Well, that and that's a great question. It relates a little bit to the question on Amazon and my answer on Amazon is that the volumes and the growth of that um, is such that there needs to be a lot of people in the in the market to facilitate it. I think the complexity comes at last mile. Um, I think the movement of goods on aircraft through hubs, uh, our air our aviation capacity and our airline partners and as you know as you may know we just extended our 777 fleet by 14 aircraft last year which will come in in a phase time so from an aviation capacity and a hub processing capacity I don't see any issues whatsoever I think the complexity comes in last mile and satisfying rather uniquely in this case of the e-commerce vertical the consumer demand when you're moving things between a bank and a bank or a a textile company and a textile company on a B2B basis, the whole thing works uh, fairly traditionally and people receive their packages exactly as they expected. With e-commerce, it's very much, um, you know, I bought it and then within five minutes, where is it? When will I get it? And that track and trace sort of uh, situation is very different to what we experience in B2B. And the point comes when someone is not at home on the day of delivery. So 
I think we've developed a tool which is now in certainly 90% of our countries, 100, more than 150, 90% of our revenue in 150 countries called On Delivery Demand, where we give due notification that day ahead that someone's receiving something and give them a range, and it varies a little bit by country, give them a range of options of how they would like to receive that. If they're going to be at home, they'll certainly elect, I'm at home, I'll receive it at home, but it could be leave with neighbour, it could be leave at pack station, it could be leave at one of our service partners' offices, and that facilitates that last mile. I think that's where the complexity comes. But e-commerce, as you said, is growing so fast that, you know, in my street in London, you might see one DHL van a day delivering to two houses. Well, now absolutely you see one delivery, one DHL delivery van delivering to most. So the density, if you will, at destination becomes a little bit similar to a business in the business to business environment. Now in the US, you were familiar with that a decade ago. John, I'm wondering how much are you uh, counting on your future uh, to include drones and self-driving vehicles? I think the thing there is it's about R&D and piloting. So, you know, honestly, in my corporate lifetime, I I don't expect that, you know, many e-commerce deliveries will be facilitated by drones on any any scale. Really? Because the number of shipping companies have actually tried a little bit. We absolutely are trying and we're doing pilots and I think they give uh, opportunity to test in remote areas how this application. So I think a pilot is perhaps less so how it will fly above the, the streets of London, but more how applicable it can be in more remote areas. Uh, you know, there's a lot of regulations around, uh, particularly from aviation regulatory bodies, regulations around drones. So I think we, we have to see uh, how it plays out. Uh, I think driverless vehicles will probably be uh, more meaningful um, as, t- as time goes by. And there's got a lot of good research and piloting going on in companies outside of our own there. And as some of these mega cities develop over time, um, I think there may well be opportunity for more utility of that particular type of vehicle. So, John, how have the trade negotiations with China, the on-again, off-again negotiations, how have they impacted your business at all? Have you sensed that in your Asia-Pacific region? I think when you're in 220 countries and you have a widely distributed revenue base, um, it's hard to actually see what's impacting what. Um, let me let me extend upon that. I think... Um, Chinese New Year, year-on-year comps are difficult to make uh, typically in any year, and this year was no exception. So our little phrase in Express is that we take January and February, bang them together and wait for March. So I, I don't think we can say it's too early to say how those have affected things. But what I absolutely would say is that whilst Brexit or China-US talks you know, have this sort of air and flavor of, of, of protectionism or, or you know, putting some barriers up to trade, for every two of those type of examples, there's at least three or four or five um, examples of trade deals that are liber- liberalizing trade corridors. And you know, I think these is an agreement between Europe and Japan being ratified now. The Trans-Pacific Partnership has, has great hopes, which will come into place this year. ASEAN is a great example of um, a trade partnership for seven or eight countries that was created 50 years ago and is still, you know, standing the test of time. So I think, let me just say, the trade policy calendar is full of opportunistic um, uh, scenarios to to open corridors to trade rather than shut them down. Okay, John, thanks very much. We're going to have to leave it there. We appreciate your time. John Pearson, a new CEO of DHL Express, joining us from our San Francisco uh, studio. John, thanks very much. 
Well, what a start of the year we've had both in equity markets and fixed income markets. And uh, I think investors are sitting back saying, what are the catalysts to move this market higher? To try to answer that and other questions, we welcome Christina Hooper. Uh, Christina is a chief market strategist at Invesco. We welcome Christina in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Christina, thanks for being here. So I think, again, a lot of people are looking back and saying, gee, we had a nice move here this first uh, part of 2019. Uh, we're done with earnings. We're done with the Fed. The Fed seems to be on the sidelines. What should we look for next to get a gauge of where these markets are going? Well, I think it's all going to be about economic data, global economic data. Because if we look at the 10-year, the yield on the 10-year has been really in sort of a very small trading range. And if you factor in inflation, it's actually gone down a bit this year, um, which suggests to me that there are concerns about global growth. And so what's going to be critical and what will likely move stocks higher is if we do get more positive data, particularly from places like China. We haven't seen much of that yet, but perhaps that could be in the offing, given how much stimulus is in the system and going into the system. If that does happen, does that mean that we get a, a real sell-off in debt markets? Well, I don't know if we're going to get a real sell-off in debt markets, but I do expect that we will see cash on the sidelines moving into stocks incrementally. Certainly, investors are more cautious than they were before. But I would imagine that we, we wouldn't see any kind of big sell-off. It's more about a move in as people look for signs of, of more positive sentiment in equities. Well, you mentioned China and maybe, are you in the camp that there are some green shoots that this fiscal stimulus will be supportive and will drive some, some maybe greater than anticipated growth in China? I am. Uh, fiscal stimulus has been really significant. So has monetary stimulus. And I expect that to continue. The tax cuts should be very stimulative. And so it should be a matter of time before that funnels into the system. It also helps that China has downwardly revised uh, everyone's expectations. And it should be easy to meet those lower expectations, if not exceed them. Christina, I'm looking right now, U.S. high-yield bonds have returned almost 6.5% so far this year. We're not even three months into 2019. I'm just wondering, especially as we are in this 11th year of a bull market, I'm just wondering, you know, we're seeing excesses starting to, you know, continue to build. I'm just wondering from your perspective, what do you think will cause the next debt crisis? That's a great question. And I think the, the one significant catalyst would be quickly rising rates. Uh, and I don't see that happening um, anytime soon. In fact, if anything, what we've seen is central bank after central bank uh, accept the fact that they need to get more dovish, even though they're very much interested in normalizing to be prepared for the next crisis. Where would it be manifested, though, the most? Where are the excesses most substantial? Well, I think we all worry about the triple B space just because there has been such an, an increase in that space and because it hangs on that precipice of being knocked over. Um, and of course, there's a lot in the way of um, refinancings to expect, not this year, but really um, next year 
2020, we should see about 10% of, of those bonds needing to be um, refinanced, essentially. Um, and so that is where probably the first area that we would want to look to. Um, I also worry about specific places like auto loans, where we've just seen defaults go up quite significantly. Is it going to cause the kind of crisis we saw um, during the GFC? No, but that suggests weakness in pockets, and we want to follow that closely. So, Christina, looking at the U.S. equity markets, where areas, again, we've had a S&P move up about 11% year-to-date. Where is Invesco looking for outperformance? Where are you overweight uh, here trying to find some performance for the remainder of the year? Well, it's all about being actually very well diversified and having enough exposure to alternatives. Uh, this is an environment where we're unlikely to see dramatic gains in equities, or for that matter, fixed income. Uh, so what we're going to need to do is be well diversified, uh, be concerned about volatility, but also use it as an opportunity um, to take advantage, for example, of um, stock picking, and also have exposure to lower or very low correlating asset classes, such as real estate, um, such as commodities, such as market neutral portfolios, ones that can soften some of the volatility we might experience in areas like equities. So you say that real estate is a good sort of potential ballast. How does that figure in or how does that pair with this idea that the U.S. housing market has been slowing down? And we got uh, another uh, round of disappointing economic data this morning having to do with the U.S. housing market. Well, that's absolutely true, but the housing market is a mosaic. And so there are some areas with great strength, some areas that don't have as much strength. And of course, we also see a commercial real estate market that is in relatively good shape. So it's all about being well diversified. And that would include real estate actually outside the U.S. Well, how about in terms of looking for a performance outside maybe the core equity fixed income uh, markets? How about emerging markets? Is that um, a place where you think we can get performance for the remainder of the year? I'm happy you brought that up because that's what I neglected to talk about. EM is very attractive right now. Now, that doesn't mean index investing in the emerging market space, but being very selective. And actually, I see opportunities in areas like China and India and other Asian equities. Um, this is an environment where... Um, it's positive for equities because emerging markets equities because the Fed has taken its foot off the accelerator, and that should that should create some nice tailwinds uh, in this space. How long do people have to stay invested in this market and expect you know pretty pretty steady returns? Well, we strongly recommend taking a very long view because we don't know what the shorter term holds. And in fact, a perfect example of that is the kind of geopolitical risks we've experienced in recent months. Uh, it's important to have that long term view because we could see some pretty significant hiccups in the shorter term. Are there any places, asset classes that you folks are just avoiding like the plague right at the moment? Well, I would say I'm very cautious on European equities. I wouldn't say avoid them, but we need to be very selective and we may want to underweight them at this point. I see a very big risk coming later this year uh, in that Mario Draghi's term ends at the end of October. Not many people are talking about this, but it looks increasingly likely that he will be replaced by someone who's more hawkish. And so, so much of what the ECB may be doing in the coming months to instill confidence may, may fall on um, deaf ears because we have someone, a new person coming in in just a few months who could change policy quite dramatically. Uh, Mario Draghi has had a very, very powerful force in terms of calming markets and taking down systemic stress. 
That's a really interesting point and something that people don't talk about that much, but it could potentially be a risk to European markets. Christina Hooper, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Christina Hooper is Chief Market Strategist at Invesco, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.